You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, powered by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome to the DIY Sportsman Podcast with your hosts, Garrett Prawl and Boudreaux Boswell. On today's episode, we have guest Shane Simpson from CallingAllTurkeys.com. He's an avid turkey hunter and competition caller. Every spring, he produces a web show called Calling All Turkeys, where he's traveling around the country filming himself and others on a semi-live basis. I actually hunted with him in Wisconsin in 2015, episode 6 of that year. Before then, I had never turkey hunted with anyone who ever really did anything other than sit on a field edge in a blind with a decoy all day, so his running gun style and calling tactics really had a big influence on me and how I turkey hunt to this day. So we have with us on the phone Shane Simpson, who is a phenomenal turkey hunter and turkey caller. Uh, Shane, why don't you go ahead and tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, how long you've been turkey hunting. Uh, when you started competition calling, and uh, how long you've been filming your hunts and putting them out on YouTube. All right, my name's Shane Simpson, uh, currently living up here in Minnesota. I'm originally from South Carolina. Um, been up here about 10 years now. Started hunting when I was, heck, I don't, I don't know. I started turkey hunting when I was about 12, I guess, 13 maybe at most. I'm, I'm not positive. Um, probably shot my first bird when I was 14. I don't keep up stats, <laughs> how many birds I killed, when I killed it. So a lot of it's just vague memories. It's been a lot of birds, a lot of years. Um, but uh, I guess I started around four, uh, 12 and shot my first one at 14. I'm going to say that to be on the safe side. Um, I, I, I guess I got really hardcore into turkey hunting as I got into my 20s and was, you know, working and, you know, up up to that close to that age when I was working and driving and you know on my own where I didn't have to rely on anybody for rides hunting on a lot of public land um, I always kind of filmed my hunts I remember having at like 15 or 16 I bought I saved up my money and bought a, one of those big VHS camcorders kind of took the full-size VHS tape I would I would film like my brother and myself would be out there dove hunting or or deer hunting uh, I don't I, re- I remember filming some preseason turkey scouting, you know, jakes and gobblers come in fighting or whatever, or just get some vocalizations. I, and I wish I still had all that, those tapes from years ago. But um, it wasn't until I um, moved up to Minnesota that I got serious about, about video and hunts, and, and I'll get to that in a second. Um, so when I moved up here, you know, in South Carolina, we used to be able to hunt a full month of April. And we could kill five birds. And so that was a lot of time in the woods and a lot of potential tags to fill each year. I moved to Minnesota, and, and at the time you could only hunt for five days. There was The season was like a month long or a month and a half. But each hunter, in order to distribute the number of hunters out there in the field at any given time, they had them separated into seasons, one-week seasons. And so, you know, the earlier seasons were highly sought after, and they were all a lottery I think everything was a lottery back then, but at any rate, I you know five days just wasn't enough for me, and um, 
so I started asking folks on forums, turkey hunting forums or hunting forums, if they would let me tag along and, and film their hunts just to be out in the woods more in, in the spring after I tagged my bird. And that's kind of where I got into the filming the hunts more. Um, I also started competition calling about that time. I always wanted to 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 give give it a go at competition calling, but I was I don't know a little too shy or too nervous to get up in front of a crowd and make turkey sounds. But for whatever reason, I guess because I was in a different state and and I saw a billboard for a sports show and and they had a turkey calling contest going on at the sports show and I said, you know what? No one up here knows me. I can go up there and compete, and if I if I embarrass myself or make a fool of myself, you know they'll never see me again. They'll never know who I was, <laughs> and that that might not be the same as South Carolina. I might run into someone I know down there. So up here, that was kind of the the boost I needed. And I'll tell you this: I had butterflies in my stomach from the day that I committed in my mind that I was going to give it a go to compete in that calling contest until the day I actually competed. It my stomach every morning I'd wake up and I'm like. Oh man, I'm so nervous to get up there and do that. And I had no idea what I was getting into, what, how the format was and everything. But I tell you what, when I finally got up there and did it, and I was so relieved after I come down, all the butterflies went away, and I actually placed third in that contest. I was uh, hooked from that day on, and never did I imagine that I would ever be on the Grand National stage. But I, I started looking for the next local contest to compete in. And I went and competed that. My calling got better. And I finally got the confidence enough to uh, go to Grand Nationals once I qualified. And um, I thought I would be more nervous on that big stage in front of all those people than at a local contest. But a local contest seems to to affect me more than the big one. The big one, they have all the lights in your face, so you really can't see the crowd. So if you just put your mind to it, you're, you're standing alone on that stage. Whereas a local contest, it's a brightly lit room, and you got people four feet from you looking at you staring at you <laughs> so it's a little nerve-wracking um so that's kind of how i got into the competition side of it and then the, the filming also i touched on and so um that kind of grew into my my show i don't know if you want to talk about that yet or not yeah might as well so um when i started filming other folks around here and and just trying to extend my time afield during turkey season a lot of the guys that or people that I would film, they you know they wanted a, a copy of their hunt, of course, of the video. And I tried putting them on DVDs and whatnot, but that just just seemed a little a little extra work than I than it should have been. So I just started putting them on YouTube and and I give them the share the links and you know they could download it from YouTube at their leisure. So then I, to make it easier for them to find these videos and to share it with others, I built a website around it, you know, showcasing the hunts and, you know, adding even turkey calling contests that I would attend. I'd video those also and I'd post those on there. You know, one thing led to another, you know, started getting some sponsors. I started uh, re- refining my editing process, you know, fine-tuning it, making it a little, little more, uh, I don't know, a little better quality, easier to digest by the the viewer um and things just grew from there it's gotten i think a little bit better and better each year i've added more cameras to capture the hunt and more mics to for better audio and just kind of fine-tuned the the final product and 
and it's it's really taken off. And that's calling, yeah, I really enjoy watching it. Yeah, that's calling all turkeys. In case anyone wants to know what the name of it is. Yeah, and you guys, how many episodes did you put out last year? Um, I put out eight in the spring, and then one a ninth one for fall turkey hunting. I typically okay. put out about, I guess, anywhere from eight to eleven episodes, depending on how well the season's going or how much content. The the one. Episode eight could have easily been broken down into two two episodes. It ended up being the longest episode I've ever created. It was like forty five minutes long, but we had a lot of action in that one. Uh, you know that one. I guess uh, not one hunt, but each episode is usually broken down into states. Like if I go to Florida, that would be one episode. I go to Alabama, that's another episode. And his was a this was with Scott Ellis in Wisconsin, and you know typically it would be a Scott Ellis in Wisconsin one episode, but it was so much a- action, I could have easily broken it down into two episodes. But I decided, you know what, it was the last episode of the spring. People were starting to think about fishing or getting ready f- for deer scouting, and putting out cameras. And there was a lot of interest being lost. And I figured, you know what, let's put it in one big finale, a forty-five minute episode, and it. It turned out to be one of the favorites of the season because it was, it, you know, it was public land, private land, working hard to get birds, and uh, you know, a bird that comes running in, you know, all, a little bit of everything. Yeah, I, I think I watched that episode like three times to try to pick as much knowledge as I could from obviously two of the the better turkey callers in the country. That was because I mean, you would imagine you guys should have no problem killing birds. But yet, but yet you you ran into you know a lot of the issues that I think a lot of guys normally run into and don't know how to handle it. So I was I was trying to learn as much as I could, see how you guys handle those situations. And that's I think that's it right there. We we all run into the same problems. We hand up gobblers or hard to get gobblers or older gobblers that are built some years and smarts about them. It's just we I guess as as you get more experience with dealing with turkeys. You you have a better knowledge of what your next move should be or might be, uh, might be or what tactic might work. Where someone else might just say, "Let's go get some lunch," you know, call it a day. That's that's the other thing that I think helps us. We don't you know we don't stop from the time we get out there in the morning, you know, until dark. Most of the time we're hunting. Most of that time, unless we just stop at the store and get a drink on the way to another track of land or, or just a quick biscuit or. Or whatever we're not lounging around napping and that that really helps a lot of people don't realize that that really helps hunting dark, uh, dawn to dark uh, really increases your odds so when you when you hunt all day I mean are, do you prefer to kind of do the traditional rooster bird at night kill them first thing in the morning is that your ideal scenario or do you actually prefer to kind of hunt them in midday uh, if I can roost one it's, if you know where one's at for the next morning, that's a huge benefit. And that's like down in Florida, my episode one from this year, I went to go roost a bird because I knew if I could locate one, and there's no guarantee you're going to hear one at dark, but if you can locate the general area one, that puts you in a huge advantage getting tight on that bird. Um, a lot of times, though, I, I find I don't have the time to roost a bird because when, it, when spring rolls around, the days are getting longer, especially you get into late spring, you know, May, mid to late May. 
up here in the Minnesota and Wisconsin Midwest, upper Midwest, days can be, what, nine or ten hours long? And especially when you're filming your hunt and you got to dump all the footage and charge batteries and clean, you know, do all that stuff, you, the birds fly up at, you know, ten minutes after official sunset. And then you've got to stay there till dark so you don't spook them if they fly up nearby. Otherwise, you can kind of ease them out of there. So by the time you get to where you're staying, your hotel, your house, or your camping, you've got to dump all your footage. And that takes a long time when you've got four cameras and two mics. It takes me about two hours sometimes just to copy all the footage from the day to, S- to my computer. And then you've got to charge batteries and then swap them out and make sure that the last set of batteries is being charged when you go to sleep. And then you got to get up at three o'clock the next morning, so it may be three or four hours of sleep. You know, if you get to bed at midnight and you got to get back up at three a.m., so that prevents me <laughs> sometimes from roosting birds. But if I wasn't filming my hunt and I didn't have anything else to do that evening after, I, and I'm already out there hunting, I might as well just try and roost the birds. I'd go stand somewhere and listen and and an owl hoot or something, because if I can figure out where he's sleeping, then I'm gonna be there when he wakes up. As far as midday hunting you touched on, yeah, if, if I didn't roost a bird and I go out in the morning, I, I always prefer daybreak hunting over anything because that's your best chance to hear a gobble. And then I guess my second favorite time would be that 10 to noon time frame, maybe just a little afternoon. It seems to me that's the easiest time, the next easiest time to hear a gobble. Early afternoon, it's okay sometimes. That's probably your third best. And then late evening, other than roost time. So late evening, say anywhere from 3 to 6 or 7, it's really hard to get a bird to gobble. They're feeding. A lot of times I've, I've seen birds in the, in the late in the evening that just want to feed. The gobblers do. But when they fly up into a tree, especially if they had hens, you know, a lot of times they're going through the woods the hens will start pitching up in the trees. The gobbler will walk another 100 yards on his own and just pitch up in his own tree. I don't know why they do that. Sometimes they roost near each other. But what I've noticed is it always seems like the hens are near each other and the gobbler's off 50 to 100 yards away in his own tree. And then he gobbles in the morning and the hens go to him or he flies down and they all meet up. He will gobble then when he gets up in the tree just, I guess, to let the hens know, okay, I'm, I'm over here tonight. So those are your, you know, the kind of your stages of when it's best or when I think it's best or the odds of hearing a gobble or working a bird. So if you, fi- if you find a bird and he has hens, are you going to try and pull him away from the hens? Or are you going to try and call the hens to you? Or are you just going to... How do, how do I know he has hens with him? Bird? How do I know he has hens with him, I guess, would be my question. Did I see the hens or well, did I hear them? <clears throat> Let's say you can hear them. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna start talking to them if I can. If I can get them to talk back to me, I, I don't care if he gobbles or anything. If there's one hen talking to me, I'm gonna try and communicate with her and convince her to come my way. And if I do, then it's gonna bring him. It, you're gonna have a hard time getting that gobbler to break from those hens and come to you. Now, some people might think that they have done it before because there's a gobbler over there and there's some hens yapping, and then all of a sudden a gobbler shows up. And what you've likely pulled in is either another tom that was in the area area that wasn't with that small flock or that small flock of hens had two or three gobblers and one that's not really getting any action he's the subordinate he just kind of leaves the flocks and comes over there and checks you out 
So, if, but it, in any case, if if a hen is willing to talk to me, I'm gonna talk to her, and I'm not gonna. I know there's a, a one of the favorite tactics that everyone says is match her word for word. If she cuts at you, cut at her. I don't necessarily match her word for word, but if she's cutting, I may cut and then I yelp on top of her. You know, I'm gonna add some different calls. I'm not just gonna copy her every single note. But if she's just soft yelping or something, I may I may soft yelp back to her. I may throw a few keys in there just to pique her interest in case she is a a, a former mother. You know, her her young would have become young adults at this time of the year, and they're on their own little flocks of Jakes and Jennies. And so, if I key a little bit, I may strike that maternal instinct, and she may come over there to check me out. And so, it, uh, and plus, gobblers seem, from what I've noticed, they seem to like high pitched calling. If you notice my calling, uh, if you watch my videos, I do a lot of high front end note in my Yelp. Yeah. And I, I do that on purpose because those gobblers seem to respond well to that high pitched noise, you know, like a key key or just a really high pitched front end or a long. I, I, I exaggerate my front end, I guess, you when I'm, when I'm yelping. Um, do you think that's because they can hear it better? No, I don't know. I, or do you I think, think they it's, actually differentiate? I think it's just a preference of the sound. They like high pitch, the 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 high pitch, just like a kiki. I, I don't have a, a good answer for it. I just noticed that when when I've done it in the past, regular yelping or added some extra front or done some keys, they gobble at it, and them gobbling at it tells me that either a they like it or b just the high pitch makes them gobble. But what I've noticed is they, they, they tend to come into my calling. And so maybe it's a combination of both, but it seems to be working. Um, I have, you know, obviously I don't have problem calling in birds a lot of times, but um, if it works, don't, don't fix it. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. So what if you can't get the hen to talk to you? What if, let's say you, you hear hens fly down with the bird or with a gobbler if it's first thing in the morning or you visually see hens walking around? But you can't get anything to respond to you, then how do you how do you kind of handle that situation? Uh, at that point, I'm probably just gonna. Uh, I don't know. There's the, everything is so dependent on the situation. So many variables out in the woods. You know, I may I may just talk to him and, and kind of get a feel for how much is he gobbling. If he just throws one gobble at me and then and then stops, I assume that he gave me just a courtesy gobble because he heard me. But he, then he went back to strutting. And if you see a, a gobbler that's really locked in to strut with a, a hens nearby, his head is tucked low and tucked back into his feathers. And a crow could call right in his ear and he wouldn't gobble to it. He's so locked in on displaying for those birds. You know, at that point, I'm either going to try and reposition, maybe get to one side of the flock of their direction of travel, or try to get in front of them, which gets to be difficult sometimes because it it may require you to make a huge circle depending on how open the woods is or the terrain and you may lose touch with the the flock or where they went and then you may never be able to get back on them that day another tactic is to do like scott and i did you know fighting purrs or a gobble i've used a gobble and uh, maybe it's just enough to to infuriate him that he comes just a little closer to check out what's going on maybe not come straight to where you're at but if like I use a Jake decoy a lot of times, almost all the time I have at least a Jake out in front of me. If he breaks from that flock just to see this rival gobbler, and then he sees that you know he's seventy yards away, and he can see that red, white, and blue head through the woods, he may come over there to challenge it. 
And so, I mean, there's, there's, there's no sure thing, but that's kind of the thought process I have, you know, should I move? Do I have the ample cover to move around quickly to circle in front of where I don't, you know, I can do it quickly and don't lose touch with the flock? Or is it going to be a, one of those, I'll move and I'll never see the flock again. Maybe I should just try and gobble, you know, that now that I know where they're at, I'm, you know, I'm sitting right there at them and trying to pull that gobbler away or Jake yelp to them or do a fighting sequence. You know, there's so many things, possible scenarios you could do. And a lot of times when the gobbler's with hens, there's no amount of calling or moving around reposition that can help you kill that bird unless maybe you just crawl through the woods to them, which I've done before, just clucks and purrs and scratch the leaves and just crawl, belly crawl my way closer until I was within gun range. And so I guess at that point I decided that was the only option. Right. So what about something just the opposite? Say you're you're in an area you're familiar with and you don't hear anything. Don't hear a bird gobble, don't hear hens, don't hear anything. Are you going to stick with locator calls to try to get a bird to gobble? Are you going to stick with turkey calls? and Or are you just going to keep moving until you find a bird that's gobbling? Or are you going to try to make it gobble? Well, I, I change it up as the day progresses. Early in the morning, and I'll go through a scenario. I'm going I'm going to track land. Like let's, This is a, a track that I hunted in South Carolina grew up. So I knew the area fairly well, and I, I had no knowledge. Let's just say I had no knowledge of where any birds were roosting. So I go to a point in the dark that I want to start my hunt. It's a uh, edge of pines that meet up with a swamp bottom, and the swamp bottom is flat and open, fairly open. And I can walk for a mile or more. So I'll start my day off with an owl hooter, trying to get one to gobble. If nothing gobbles... And it gets to fly down time, you know, around, you know, a few minutes before sunrise. I usually get a turkey call out and I'll just run and gun I'll, or walk and call. I'll walk about 100 yards and I'll stop near a tree or something and I'll make some yelps. And if nothing, I'll make some more aggressive, louder calling. And I don't stay there too long, you know, just a few seconds and if I don't hear anything after a couple series of calls or cuts and I don't hear anything, I start moving. And I'll, I'll walk slowly until I get another 100, 150 yards away and I'll do it again. And the reason I don't lollygag in one area too long is I've had birds come to my calling quietly. And if I st- stuck around too long, they saw me when I started walking again. So what I've noticed, if I, if I do a series of calls and I don't get a gobble and I just go ahead and move... And that bird has to keep following me because I'm moving too quickly. He he eventually will gobble. And I've had that happen several times in the past. He gobbles, telling me, wait, I'm trying to catch up to you. And then I just sit down and face behind me, and there he comes in. Um, but that's basically my routine throughout the day until I get tired. I may do that until you know 9 or 10 o'clock in the morning walking if I have enough ground to cover. Um, walking you know, every 150 yards or something like that and calling. And if I come to an area and that looks nice and it looks like, you know, there's some scratching or I know the area and I know turkeys like it, for instance, if it's familiar ground, I'll probably just plop down beside a tree, throw a decoy out, make some calls every, you know, few minutes and just blind call, basically. And um, I may do that for about an hour or two. And... If I'm tired, I'll, I may just catch me a little 15-minute minute cat nap. And I'll, I can't tell you how many times I've 
made a call or two and and this warm sun's hitting your face and the birds are singing and it's just lulling you to sleep and your eyes are just starting to close and you hear a twig snap or you hear some leaves or you hear that of a gobbler drumming and you know I've killed my two of my biggest birds up until 2016 came that way I was walking and calling and for most of the morning and finally decided just to sit down and make a few calls and just catch a little cat nap and they come sneaking in and I heard them walking in and I was able to you know shoot them that way but that's that's basically my scenario I'll, I'll start it in the morning to owl hoot if not if nothing responds I'll start calling and walking for a little while then I'll sit down and blind call for a while after that two hours of not hearing anything, yeah, I may leave and get me something to eat, or I may start walking and calling again. And um, I can't say that I spend every single waking moment out in the woods, but 75% of my day, if I have all day to hunt, it's going to be out there in the woods trying to locate birds. I'm not a big fan of sitting in one spot for four or five hours, although... Last year, I, I sat in one spot for 11 hours almost, or 10 hours, because I knew the gobblers liked that area, and we were seeing a gobbler like every two hours, one or two hours, we'd see one maybe at a distance, or would hear one. There was no sense in moving. You know, that's one of those scenarios where, you know, you'd be foolish to leave, and it finally worked worked out after about 10 or 11 hours. One finally came out and gobbled. I called to him, and he come running down to us. So first thing in the morning when you start using that owl hooter, are you doing it, like when do you start? Is it still pitch black out when you start blowing that owl hooter? Or is it the sun starting to break through the trees? Is it starting to get light? When do you actually start using that call? Um, I guess I have a feel for when I typically hear a turkey naturally gobble. I, I like when the sky is starting to light up and you start to see through the woods. But a, a good... A good indicator of when to start owl hooting and a turkey may start gobbling is when the birds start singing around you. If you start hearing a cardinal, that's time to hit an owl hooter because the, the turkeys are waking up too. All the birds seem to wake up around the same time. And, uh, you know, an owl's a nocturnal animal, so you, you kind of exclude him. But the songbirds and the turkeys, all those are daytime animals and are daytime birds. And, uh, if the cardinals are singing, the gobbler's got his head out looking around, and he's ready to gobble as soon as he hears a loud enough noise. And will you kind of do your standard eight note, or do you just go right into a whole it, hooting sequence? It's changed over the years, but uh, a lot of times it's just a single note to begin with because if you, especially if you don't have any idea where, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> especially if you don't have any idea where a gobbler may be, there may be one you know, 75, 100 yards from you, and you don't want to just start blowing an owl call nonstop. So I just started, usually start off with just a whoo, just a single um, whoo note, <laughs> and, and see what I hear. I can demonstrate it better on the owl call if you like to hear it. I'd go through, I'll go through the routine sure. of my owl hooting sequence in the morning trying to get one to gobble, and I don't know where one's at. So the first one I would do would be That way, if he gobbles, I'll hear it, and I'm not hooting on top of him. If I wait there a few seconds and I don't hear anything, the next one's going to... I don't think I actually ever do an, a standard eight note when I'm out there trying to locate. I'm trying to make noise to 
to get them to gobble, to shock gobble. And but I still want to add a sound realistic. And and barred owls, you you're probably full aware that they don't always do eight notes; they do variations. So my next call, anyway, would probably be something like this. And if still not, nothing after that, then I'll get into the laugh or the caterwauling. And that really works well at getting a bird to gobble. Um, I don't know why. I guess it's just a, a more aggressive, um, harsh sound that, that will trigger that gobble, just like a crow call will. And, then, and this would probably be the next thing I do before I move on to another location. And if that doesn't work, then maybe do some more caterwauling. And then if nothing gobbles, then I'm definitely moving somewhere else or pulling out the crow call. But I, I don't know. I, I'm just not a big fan of the crow. I usually have really good success in getting the gobble to an owl hooter. So real quick, what, what um, call are you using for your owl hooting? This is a Harrison hooting stick sold by um, Hooks Custom Calls. This is actually the signature burnt Osage, and it's James Harrison makes these. Um, they, they, Hooks has them available in like walnut and a synthetic plastic one. The wood ones to me have a more uh, a mellower, more realistic tone. And this signature one he made, and it's a little, I guess, a little expensive. Depending on your idea of expensive, it runs about 50 bucks. But it sounds to me that it's the real, most realistic sounding call out of the three, out of the walnut and the plastic. Now, all three sound good and sound like barred owls. But I'm a competition caller, and I'm also a stickler for realism. So I, I'm using this call. This is the call I actually compete with also. And it's also, and I hunt with it, you know, but I just like how realistic it sounds. And you'll, I call in so many barred owls out in the woods. Um, did you, you watch the, the latest episode, correct? The Florida one? Yeah, I think both of us did. Okay. So there's a, there's a sequence or a section in there where I'm roosting, trying to roost a gobbler with my brother. And I start owl hooting and, and try and get one to gobble. Well, the real, the real barred owl started firing up and caterwauling, and they were about 100 yards from me or 75 yards from me. Beyond them, another 75, 100 yards was a gobbler that sounded off to their, their owl hooting and caterwauling. And so a lot of people dismiss realism. They just want a loud noise to shock them. But if you, if you strive to be realistic, like realistic crow sounds and realistic owl sounds, you can get real owls and real crows to communicate with you and if they're at a distance you just extended your locating capabilities now you've if you know increased your effective range because they fire off at you and i've had that work numerous times in the past south carolina last year i was owl hooting couldn't get a gobble to save my life and finally a barred owl responded to me and he must have been two or three hundred yards away he was a long ways off and right next to him right after he owl hooted to me I hear a gobble. So he basically, I basically got that owl to respond to me and that owl got that gobble to, to shock gobble because I was too far away to be effective. My sound was too soft at that distance to him. Huh. That's I got really this synthetic call, but now you're kind of wanting me to 
to get that signature series. Oh, it sounds good. <laughs> but, I mean... I've noticed that before... What's that? I said I've noticed that before, not with my owl calling, but when I blow the crow call midday, usually I, it seems like there's always a, a group of crows that'll just start going off on their own. And then when I crow call and I hear a bunch of other crows start going and still there's no gobblers, then I kind of feel hopeless. <laughs> well, they don't they don't always gobble to crows and stuff, so I, I, I don't... I know there's turkeys. If there's sign, you scout it, and you know they're around. You know, turkeys also nap during the day. Believe it or not, I, I used to, when I was first starting turkey hunting, I thought a turkey woke up in the morning and flew down and ate and gobbled and strutted and, and mated and did everything all day long until it was time to fly up. But they don't. I mean, if you if you ever raised chickens or been around chickens, turkeys act a lot like chickens. Chickens fly down in the morning or from their roost and scratch and peck around in the yard and at some point in the morning, they, you know, they go stand in the shade and preen their feathers or, you know, take a nap. Turkeys will do the same thing. They'll fly in a tree in the middle of the morning sometimes, the middle of the day, and, and roost again. Or get on a log or get under a, a shrub or a bush in, in the shade. I've found gobblers laying in the cool grass in the shade of the edge of a field before napping, you know. So they may just be loafing. And then... An hour or two later, they they're back at it, moving around. And you you go out there sometimes, like where did all the turkeys go? Well, they're they're out there. They're just doing turkey stuff. When you mentioned that you know all the competition calling you've you've done and how you like realism and, and all that, as far as you know the intensity and the the cadence and everything that you do on stage, how does that compare? You know, especially with yelping and cutting, compared to what you would actually do in the woods. The, uh, I'd, I'd say the main difference between competition calling and, and hunting calling, I guess that's the, your question, right? And, and yeah. It's, when you're on a competition stage, you know, your, your time allowed to create a call is condensed. You know, so you have to really speed things up and condense everything. Now, the sound that we produce on stage, a competition caller, is the exact sound we produce out in the woods. If we yelp in the woods, it's the same exact yelp on stage. Then that, but that's the difference. In the woods, we we don't have a timer or a clock there that's going to penalize us if we go over it. So we could yelp one or two times and then wait 30 seconds and then yelp one or two times and then go into cutting. Where on the stage, you have a one, uh, basically a one-minute time limit per call. And so if they ask you to do cutting of an excited hen, you've got to kind of show the judges okay this is a calling sequence i'm gonna build it up like a hen would in the woods but you condense it all together so the, the spacing is closer together and and what i mean not spacing between cuts but like if a hen out in the woods she says yup 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 and she may pause for a while and listen on the stage you got to get rid of those pauses you've got to just yelp and then cut and maybe just a really short pause and cut so you, you're trying to create a real scenario that you'd hear a wild hen do, but get a, get rid of all the delays so you can fit it into a one-minute time frame. And that's basically all it is. I mean, the fly-down uh, call, for, uh, for instance. In the woods, a hen sits on the tree. She wakes up in the morning. She does a few yelps. She may cluck or something. You know, she does all this stuff, and it may take from the time the sun's coming up to the time she flies down, maybe a half hour. On the stage, you have a minute. 
So we go up there and do some couple of tree yelps. And then we start clucking like we're a hen getting excited. And then we fly down. And you got to condense all that. So, I mean, that's basically the biggest difference. You're basically just condensing the natural process of how a hen would call in the woods. You're cramming it all into one minute. Are there any calls that you wouldn't do in the woods that you would do on stage? Let's see. I wish I had a call list. Oh, I do have a call list right here. I'll go over it. Okay. Jake Yelp, I'd do that. Now, I'm, I'm reading off the NWTF calling contest score sheet, and they have all the calls that we would do in a contest. Jake Yelp, I'd do that. Fighting purrs, I would do that. Tree call, tree Yelp, I'd do that. Playing Yelp of a hen. Cutting, yes. Adult hen assembly. Um, now that one there is usually used more in the fall, but you know, I'd still do it occasionally. It's not something that's going to hurt you. Fly down cackle, kiki run. That's more of a fall call. But like I said earlier, that's also a kiki run. Is a seems to entice gobblers sometimes. That high pitch calling. Plus you have the chance of you know triggering that maternal instinct from a from a hen. And then she comes in and drags the gobbler with her. Cluck and purr. This is one I I don't use that often. I mean, it's um, a contented call, a bird feeding. And there's a couple variations of clucks and purrs. There's a more aggressive cluck and purr of a hen coming in. She's aggravated. I usually call that a cut and purr, but a lot of people call it a cluck and purr, and they get confused with the, the feeding of a hen, the cluck and purr, when a hen's pecking on the ground or grass. She's, she's more like little soft clucks and really soft purrs. In my opinion, when a bird gets close enough that they can hear that, you should be shooting them. Now, not, that's not to say I've never used it because they may be close enough for you to shoot them, but they're obstructed by a brush or anything or a tree, and you just need them to take an extra step and you know maybe throw a little soft tree up and some clucks and purrs just to put them at ease. But that's probably the, the call that I use least the least amount in the woods. Um, a gobble. I used to never use that, just primarily because I couldn't use it. I couldn't create that sound. And and I thought those little shaker tubes and all these other gobble calls you get on the market, I just thought they sounded too fake. Now that I'm um, starting to get better at gobbling on the mouth call, it sounds pretty decent. I've won some local uh, smaller calling contests, the gobbler division, gobbling division with it. So I think it's uh, gotten to the point where it's good enough to use in the woods, and I've actually used it for the last couple of seasons and, and had success with it. And then the last call on the list is the Yelp of an excited hen. So basically everything you do in a calling contest, I would do. The only call I wouldn't do, I can almost say I would never do, would be the putt, and we don't have to do that in a calling contest. And that's the alarm, alarm call of a turkey when it's seen danger and it putts, and usually they're on their way out of there, <laughs> away from you when they're putting. It would. Yeah, I've heard that one plenty of times in the woods. <laughs> it's about the only turkey vocalization I hear. <laughs> yeah, it's probably a good call to get them to poke their head up if they're in strut, but but it's uh, kind of a dangerous call too because I've seen birds when they hear a putt just take off running. It's kind of like a deer when it comes in and you're bow hunting, you you go man to get them to stop. Some deer have learned to associate any noise with danger, and as soon as you go man, they haul butt. So. You know, just a cluck or something would be good to get them to pop their head up or just be patient and wait for them to put, put their head up or shoot them while they're strutting. <laughs> That's what I do. I wait for them to turn broadside and shoot their head while they're strutting. Then they don't even flap. 
Yeah, they. I've noticed they. Yeah, they. They don't tend to flop much when they're in full strut near you shoot them. I don't know why. Um, You're an intelligent guy. You tell me. <laughs> um, I don't have a great theory, but I can tell you that the majority of the birds I've shot over the last two years have been in strut, and the majority of them have not flopped. They've yeah. just kind of tipped over. Yeah. I don't know if it's because you're getting more more pellets in the chest, or I tend to shoot a little bit low too, so I end up getting a. You have that entire brain and nervous system all crammed all in one little cluster, and so you you, you do more damage to most of the nervous central uh, central nervous system, whatever you call it. I've mm-hmm. read something somewhere, but I'm I, I shouldn't even even bring it up because I can't remember. There was something about like if you shot an animal in the body and killed it instantly. Or if you shot it in the head, and then body shots never make them shake, but a head shot would. And you know, a bow shot turkey doesn't flop because you shoot them in the body. Then they may run off and, and, and then die a little bit later. But they don't, once they die, they don't flop around. It's that the brain and nervous system shut off instantly. I guess there's a lot of signals going through the body that makes them shake. I don't know. Yeah, I guess it's kind of like that old chicken with its head caught off. I almost think... I wonder if it's like when you hit them just in the head, there's still some extra, you know, Electricity. neurotransmitters and stuff moving around and, and things are firing, even yep. though the bird is, is brain dead, there's, there's still things happening. Yeah. But I don't know why that wouldn't happen if you also got body shot. So, you know, head and body. Well, the, the brain you think is, it would happen the brain is still functioning fully at that point. So it's, it's not sending the erratic, erratic signals or whatever to the body. Yeah. Anyway. Maybe your listeners can tell us something about that. Yeah, if anybody knows why that is, please send us a message. I'd love to know. Um, with the calls then, obviously you use a ton of mouth calls. Do you run pot calls that much anymore or box calls or any other kind of calls or is it pretty much just the the mouth calls? I'll be honest with you. I think part of the what I carry in my vest is uh, dictated by me filming my hunts. I carry so much extra equipment for like extra batteries and, and SD cards and mics and stuff that there's not a whole lot of room in my vest for calls. I have one pot call in my vest and that's it. Had I, If I wasn't filming my hunts, I probably might have two pot calls in there. <laughs> but that'd be about it. I'm not, I, I, I like my mouth calling. I, I don't know, I, I think I can do what I need to do on those. I carry a pot call just to reach out there sometimes. I don't care for a box call, not because they they don't sound good. They definitely sound good. They're just bulky, and they they always seem to make noise. Or or you you know if you ever had them in your vest and you get you sit down in an awkward position, then you got the the lid of the box call poking you in the side. Especially if you're in a hurry to sit down, you don't have time to move it. I don't know they just seem to be a problem for me, and I've never seen a real advantage of having them. Is there one type of call that's kind of regarded as the most realistic sounding? Like if you hear a guy mouth calling, if you're good, if you've been around turkey calling enough, you can tell I'd, some guy running a mouth call, not a real turkey. But. Yeah, I'd, I would, I would say that the mouth call is the most realistic turkey call out there. I mean, without a doubt. I mean, you look at the competitions. A friction caller would almost find it impossible to beat a mouth. Now, not any friction caller, and not any good mouth caller. But a champion friction caller would have a hard time beating, you know, the champion mouth caller. 
just because I, I don't know the the latex it um, softens the sound and you're able to get more uh, uh, a wider range of sounds I don't know it just sounds more realistic I mean if if someone's out in the woods playing a pot call or a glass surface for instance I can tell that it's a pot call but you put a good now I'm talking about a real good pot caller uh, a, a champion caller if he's out there in the woods and he's running a pot call a lot of times you can tell that he's running a pot call even though it's really sounds I mean it sounds really good it sounds close you know really close to a real hen there are little nuances that you can pick up and tell that it's a pot call now you take a champion uh, caller that uses a mouth call and put him out in the woods some of those are almost impossible to tell the difference between a real turkey and you know and a, and a caller so there's a another type of call the the tube call which also runs on latex what is it the tube one, oh, the tube the, call the tube call yeah i bought one last year and i can get it to do pretty good jake yelps but i still think that the um the mouth or the regular diaphragm call sounds a little bit better overall yeah just th- th- you just have more control with the mouth call and, and i'll say that i've learned a lot about the mouth call in the last um I don't know, umpteen years, ten years or more or so. They're a lot like a a musical instrument. I mean, let's take a saxophone for instance. I could pick one up, or anybody probably can, or trumpet. It doesn't matter, and you could probably make some noise with it. But once you get really good at it, you know, an expert uh, musician, you can pick it up and make all kinds of melodies with it without even having uh, needing sheet music in front of you you just off the top of your head you know what to how to play it mouth call is in essence the same way i could pick up a mouth call and i've gotten fairly good at it where i can adjust the sound at will i can make uh coyote howls on it i can do um what's the bird up here the Sorry, my dog saw somebody <laughs> outside. <laughs> what does that? Loon, that's it. I couldn't think of it. Oh, the loon, yeah. yeah. But I mean, I can do, and I'm not trying to brag say that I can do this. The call is capable of doing that. I can uh, do a, um, a hawk on it. There's a, so many sounds. Once you learn how to, to manipulate the reeds, at, at will or do what you want to it it's just like any musical instrument i mean it's uh you know there's a lot it can do it's not just a call that you can just go and make no simple noises on it once you master it you can do a lot of things with it and it, i think it has a wider range of capabilities than most of your standard calls out there or like the tube call for instance tube call would be a kazoo where the mouth call would be a saxophone <laughs> <laughs> the kazoo well, i noticed the same thing too with like like a single reed call yeah like a, a single reed call you can make it like coyotes coyote sounds you can make deer sounds you yeah. can make tons of different kind of sounds out of the same exact thing but you I, know with like diaphragm too you got elk sounds i'm sure you can make with your your turkey call and vice versa you could probably buy an, an elk bugle call and, and you can make turkey sounds with it yeah I, th- I think you just with the tube call though you lose a little capability because your lip is pressed against it. You don't have, like I, of the mouth call, it's in your mouth, your tongue, the surface of your tongue's against it. You can increase tongue pressure. You can change the shape of your tongue slightly. You can move the call around. There's all kinds of 
variables you can adjust where a, a tube call there's not a whole lot you can press against your mouth and of course there are some guys out there that get really good with tube calls and they can do some really uh, amazing things with it but when you put put them next to each other there's just no comparison what the mouth call can do i don't think there's another call that even comes close to it yeah i'm just getting my calls ready real quick they're good i was separating the reeds I just, um, when you separate the reeds, do you usually do that like the morning of a hunt? Typically, I keep my um, reeds picked. And um, what, what I mean by picked is I keep a toothpick or a piece of a toothpick between that top reed that's cut and uh, the next reed below it. And that's just because the latex has uh, a tendency to stick together like, like glue when they dry out. And if you get there in the morning and start working a bird or, or in a pinch you need to swap calls, it's not ready for it. you got to spend time trying to separate and get it wet. If you keep a toothpick in there when it's dry, you just, you just kind of stick the horseshoe end of the call into your mouth, kind of get a little bit of spit down there, and then just pull that toothpick out and it's ready to run. And it'll sound just as good as if you'd been running it for a few hours. Um, lately, I've been kind of lazy. I've just been putting the call in my, a little pack I carry in my pocket every day. And and when I get out there in the early morning hours before it gets light, I'll go ahead and kind of separate them manually. you got to be careful there. You could tear the reeds if you start pulling on them. So it's, it's really a good idea if you can keep them separated with a toothpick or something, it's better. So if they are stuck together, what kind of sound will it make? Will it just be like all oh, front be, end, no, no it, rasp? Yeah, let me, uh, let me grab one here that's dry. So this is, uh, this, I'm going to let you hear, this is another call. I'm going to let you hear how it should sound. Now here's the call that hasn't been separated. It's dry. I used it down in Florida and Alabama and I haven't. I didn't pick it, and now it's dry to a bone. You can hear that high pitch. Uh, yeah, the reeds just not vibrating to get that rasp, so it's just all, just all high pitch stuff. Now I'm gonna take this call and just ever so gently grab that tip of that top reed and pull it back, and I'm gonna stick my tongue in there, and in between those the top reed and the second reed to get it wet in there. <laughs> So you can hear out just by separating that top reed. Now you got rasp. So at what stage after a hunt do you recommend picking it? Is it like immediately after the hunt or just like within the last four hours? When I'm picking the reeds, normally if I, you know, the call is in my mouth the entire time I'm hunting until I, I decide, okay, it's time to head back to the truck and I'm approaching the truck or, or we could just kill a bird and I'm putting the call away. The picks, the little pieces of toothpick are in my little plastic call case, and uh, I just grab one out and I wet, I wet the toothpick so it slides in between the reeds easier, and to do it when when the call's you know been used, and I put it away like that. That way, if you know, I don't have to worry about it or try to remember it later. And I always put my call right back into the case because if you you stick it in a pocket or something, I've done that in the past, just tossed it in a vest pocket. In the heat of a moment, after a kill or whatever, in the excitement of something or just whatever, and then find it the next day, like, where's my call at? And then I find it all dried and 
crusty inside my vest somewhere. But yeah, usually. So that's your short-term call storage, then. No, that's my long. That's my long term. <laughs> yeah, I don't do uh, the, all the refrigerator stuff. I the the way I look at it, if you're going to be good at turkey calling with a mouth call, you can't pull it out two weeks before the season or even two months. So I keep because I'm a competition caller. Also, I keep like four calls. I have this little Alps Outdoors call case. You can get it on their website, but it came with my turkey vest. And it'll hold. Um, it has three slots, but you can get about two calls in each slot, so it'll hold like six calls. I keep them in my pocket every day. I go to work, and I if I get bored or whatever, or I'm not listening to music on, uh, while I work on my earbuds or my phone, I'll toss in a call and do some clucks and purrs. Sometimes I'll gobble or something <laughs> just to kind of <laughs> annoy the coworkers. But, yeah, I have a, my calls are in my pocket 365 days a year. I think that's probably something that, a lot of people don't do. I know I don't do that very a very good job at that. Always calling. Yeah, and it, it, there is some truth to refrigerating, I guess, because latex is an, an organic compound or material. It comes from a tree, plant, or sap, or whatever. So I guess it can break down. It's not like a synthetic. But um, you know, I'm running the, the call I got here in front of me is the same one I had towards the end of last season. So I. I used it during towards the end of last season. I used it in a few calling contests. I used it in Florida and Alabama, along with some of my newer calls. But it's still going good. I mean, I can look at it and tell it's starting to yellow and start. It, I guess it's starting to go downhill. But as long as I'm still getting a good sound out, I'll keep using it. Do you have favorite calls then, or can you just like take any random call out of your pouch and and run with it? Um. I guess I have some that I tend to use more than others. You know, I have these these the new project ones I make, and although I like how they sound, before before I started making those, I was running a, just a plain three read bat wing and a three read reverse combo. I find myself going back to those uh, sometimes just because I, I guess I'm I guess that would be kind of my favorite. It has you know good sound, good cutting. The project ones I made. They're really good for soft stuff because I, I build those with so little tension, so little back tension, require so little air. It's good for all that soft calling, just your plain yelps and stuff. And the one call that Prodigy C does great Jake and Gobbler yelps and gobbling. So I, I kind of swap to those when I want to do some soft stuff. If I'm trying to reach out there and, and, and get a bird's attention or just cut to it at long range, the 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 four calls or the three calls out of my mouth call mechanics kit there are three reads of um, thicker latex so they have the backbone to withstand some really aggressive calling so I I do like a lot of aggressive calling you know so I, I tend to use those more than the others and then I may swap to the the new ones I'm making as the birds get closer or if I'm already set up close to a bird okay do you think that the a wing bone is kind of more of just like a nostalgia thing, or you think there's a, a time and a place for that too? Um, I've had friends. I have friends that that swear by them. That sometimes they can pull that out, and that just the sound of it uh, will work where a, a mouth call wouldn't. You know, I'm I'm like you, kind of. I know you're a scientific guy. I'm I kind of think along those lines a lot. You know, what what are we comparing it to? Were you, was your mouth calling really bad? You know, and and you're, you pulled out the tube call and it or the wing bone, 
and it sounded more like a turkey. So in a, in a scientific way, you know, you, there's no real comparison of whether what the reason why it worked. Um, I think if you're making turkey, good turkey sounds, you know, I, I used to buy into the, you know, carry several calls with you in the woods because, you know, you never know what that gobbler's going to like. And I, I think a lot of times it's just, um, it's not that they like the sound of that call. It's necessarily, it's maybe now you switch calls and now you sound like another turkey. Now it sounds like two turkeys over there. And it's not really that call that drew them in. Or the call you switched to, you went from a pot to a box. Now the box, the calling sounds better. It sounds more realistic. And I think that has a lot to do with it. Um, but there are some good callers that will use a wing bone and say, yeah, the wing bone really did it. Maybe it's a more familiar sound It's a, or it sounds like a, Jake, if you ever heard a wing bone, there's a, it's a real yawky sound. I can't really describe it hollow kind of sound um maybe it's a turkey it sounds uh, it sounds familiar to that gobbler you know a turkey he wants new or maybe it sounds like a jake i don't know but you know i guess i guess that's my thoughts on that <laughs> i don't know where i was actually going with it but with your mouth calls do you think is the the cut on the top read is it basically just you pick whatever type of cut fits your airflow the best and you just stick with that always or and then it's just the tension of the latex that kind of handles how well, much air volume you can throw past the collar kind of explain the design yes and no once you um once you figure out your airway and what kind of cut you need on a call i, th I think you know the airway is important deciding you know what cuts you use because there's multiple cuts that will work for for you for instance now, if you're if like me, I'm a left side airway caller, so I need like a reverse combo cut. I need uh, maybe a bat wing, but I will sometimes run other calls that don't have a gap over there on, on the side of the call that for my airway. The Prodigy C call that I'm making, for instance, it's gaps right in the middle. Now, what hurts me on that call is I can't get a clear front or a key key unless I move my tongue over which requires a little effort or move the call or reposition but the call as it is uh, uh, on its own does produce some good jake yelps and good yelps and stuff and i can still cut on it you don't necessarily need the gap right over your airway but but if you want to pick a call that that'll really work for you and do everything like the, the reverse combo or the bat wing for me I can do every single call on it that a turkey makes. I can do a kiki, a tree yelp, bubble clucks, pips, plain yelps, jake yelps, uh, really raspy yelps, uh, gobbles. Now, I can fine-tune it by picking other cuts and everything, uh, fine-tune a certain sound. Like, maybe I get better gobbles on that Prodigy C call. You know, I can still gobble on the bat wing, but I, I get a better gobble with uh, a different cut. So basically, once you figure out your airway for your real good quality calling or a larger range of calling on one mouth call, you want to stick to picking one that's cut with a, the gap on, that matches your airway. But you don't have to stick to that for, for just running calls. And then you can play with different constructions or different manufacturers. Like you can get a call from company X or company Y or company Z, and they may put three reeds or two reeds, or they may use different thicknesses of latex or different t 
tensions and stretch. So, I mean, you still have to be aware of your airway and, you know, and buy calls or purchase calls according to that for your, your, your main calling. But you, you, you're never restricted to those airways or that cut or types of cuts for other calling. I mean, you can play around. No one's going to stop you from doing that. So what about your, your decoy strategy? I know you mentioned earlier that you always had a Jake decoy with you. Um, do you always carry a hen and a Jake? You know, kind of what's your decoy strategy and what do you recommend? It's, um, my strategy has kind of uh, was evolved over the years. Um, I used to just put a, a, went back when the foam decoys were out and popular, I always carried two hens. And then I started using a, a Jake and a hen, or Jake and two hens. And then I moved that down to just a Jake and a hen. And then I just carried a Jake and a hen, but usually put the Jake out and had the hen for a backup. Or if I decided that, you know, this gobbler may be wary, it may be a, um, a subordinate gobbler, I may just put a hen out because he may be wary of a, a Jake decoy. And now it's evolved to, I just carry a Jake decoy with me and, and and if I decide a decoy is necessary, he goes out in front of me. And if I decide not, then he stays, you know, in my vest. And the Jake decoy has worked wonders for me over the years. And so that's that's basically my main strategy is just to put a Jake out there in front of me. It doesn't, you know, when I'm sitting and set up and calling to a gobbler and there's a Jake decoy in front of me and I, I'm hen calling. My, my hen calling is, in essence, a hen decoy. The gobbler comes in, he can hear the hen, he just can't see her, but he sees that Jake, and you put that Jake where you want to take the shot, and the gobbler goes right to it almost every time. Are you running a quarter strut Jake, or a half strut, or just like a, an upright? I'm, I, don't, I don't like strutting decoys. Uh, the, de the Jake I have is kind of a, I don't know, he's, he's somewhere like just starting to puff up, or puffed up halfway, or he's not even three quarters. The, the key thing to a, a Jake decoy to me is that his head is above the, his back. That way, if a gobbler comes in from any direction, he can still see the head. There's some decoys out there that have the head tucked real low, and if you're coming in from behind it, you can't even see that red or that white cap on that gobbler, that Jake decoy's head. I like my Jake decoys to be, you know, visible 360 degrees. That makes sense, especially with the color, like you said, being able to see that. So in Florida... Um, we had to plop down real quick and I, I tossed the Jake decoy out in front of me about nine yards. And he has, you know, a, a nice white cap on his head and he has you know, the little blue cheeks but a, a really red uh, waddles and everything. And when we finally, I don't want to tell a whole lot about the hunt because so, that episode will be coming up soon. But basically the, the gobbler saw that decoy. If you've ever been in the swamps or cypress swamps in Florida, they can be fairly dark up in there. And that white head, that cap on that decoy was like a beacon. And I saw that gobbler at probably 100 yards trotting straight to us. Now, had that just been a plain hen decoy, he may have never even seen it. And the, and the body of, the, of, a, of, of a decoy sometimes blends in, especially in those dark conditions. But that, that head was just glowing like a beacon. And I think that really contributed to him seeing it at a distance and come running in. Now, we didn't know he was coming in. We were sitting there quietly, and the bird hadn't gobbled in a while, but um, uh, I did spot him, luckily, through a gap through the trees, and 
and he saw my decoy from a long ways off, so it really helped. Yeah, the, the Jake decoy that I have is one of those half strut ones where the head's tucked in. And I've been carrying it into the woods ever since I had the scenario where a Tom came in and started beating it up when I was six yards away. Yeah. I'm thinking, how can I leave it at home after something like that? <laughs> yeah. But I mean, what you say makes a lot of sense. And if I can find an excuse to leave that enormous decoy that seems like it's nearly the size of a full grown turkey anyway out of the pack, that'd be nice. Yeah, I just, I don't even carry a hen with me anymore. I mean, now, I carried I carried a hen with me in Florida and Alabama in my truck just in case I decide, okay, I'm going, I worked these birds this morning. I saw they, you know, I, I can't think off the top of my head a scenario. I'm just, but say a scenario pops in my head and I said, you know what? A hen would work in this in this situation. Let me get her out of the truck. I have her traveling with me, but when I'm in the woods, Unless I saw a need for it, it's just that jade decoy in my vest with me. So what states are you planning on hitting this spring yet? You, you've done Florida, and Alabama was next on the list. Um, Nebraska next week, their archery season's in. Um, and then, let me think, let me, I should pull up my calendar here. That'd make it a lot easier for me to <laughs> tell you. Let's see, uh, uh, oh, there's a Learn to Hunt um, event coming up in Wisconsin. Learn to Hunt is... Wisconsin has these programs and the DNR and the NWTF kind of work in conjunction with that. And, and it's not always the NWTF. There's some local you know, rod and uh, gun club or something like that that will help organize it. But it's the DNR that puts it on in Wisconsin. It's open to anyone that's never turkey hunted in the state. And so they can be any age. You know, they can be old, young, doesn't matter. And they get a free turkey tag. And these on these hunts usually the the organizers have gotten permission on local farms or properties where some of these properties never get hunted for deer or anything but they open it up for the youth turkey hunt or the learn to hunt program and so they their odds of uh, success are are, uh, greatly increased that'll be next week i'm actually uh not next week the that'll be after nebraska that'll be um april 7th and 8th right now uh, a fellow by the name of Tim Murdoch from, gosh, I, I don't want to, he's from the southeast, Virginia, Kentucky, or something like that. He's coming up to participate. Now, he is he is legally blind, he, and I think he had some uh, an eye disease or something about 10 years ago. I'll, I've, I briefly met him in Nashville at the NWTF convention, and I'll get to spend some time with him in Sheboygan, Wisconsin, at the Learn to Hunt. And we're going to film it, him attempt to take a wild turkey. Now, they have all this equipment that will, uh, I don't know all the details yet, but something along the lines of there will be a safety trigger on the on the gun that a, a mentor will have that will, you know, won't allow the gun to be fired until he presses a button, engages, you know, removes the safety, basically. I think there's some type of monitor or something, <clears throat> excuse me, so that we can see where he is aiming and help guide him, you know, putting the crosshairs on the turkey's head. And then, so that'll be interesting. At least the first time I've uh, uh, been around some, uh, you know, a hunt like that. It'll be pretty cool to experience. And, and I'm hoping Tim is able to get a bird. And then, believe it or not, I don't hunt for like seven straight days. I'm in, I'm at work or doing nothing. That's probably a good time to go to South Dakota. <laughs> um, then I head to Missouri for a another kind of a special hunt. 
a fellow down there, it was him and his, his dad, they used to go listen to birds gobble or, you know, or roost birds or hunt birds. And there was this one ridge where he and his, his dad went and they heard turkeys gobbling. Was his dad's health declined and he was put on hospice care. <clears throat> and it's kind of a tribute to him. He wants to go hunt some of those gobblers, the last ones his dad heard. His dad just uh, recently passed away. And so I'm going to go down there and film him attempt to take one of those birds or call them then. And we don't know for sure it's the same birds, but, you know, it's um, it was the, the trees or the roost site where he last heard birds. And we assume that some of those birds have got to be the same. So that's kind of that hunt. From there, I go to Kansas, and that's a media hunt. I'll be hunting with uh, fellows from the, or folks from, it'll be girls and guys from the, the National Wild Turkey Federation. Um, there'll be some other industry companies, or companies, hunting industry companies there, showcasing new products, turkey hunting, of course, killing some turkeys. From there, I hunt Wisconsin uh, with a wildlife artist and, and champion of many call making competitions and grand national champion of that dave constantine he was in my episode eight last year when scott ellis and i went down there so i'm actually found him kill a turkey hopefully in wisconsin in late april then i head to south dakota the last day of april and then i come back to wisconsin to film uh, a buddy of mine in wisconsin and then it's off to new york and Virginia. In Virginia, we hopefully, if everything works out, we're going to be taking mules back into the mountains of Virginia and trying to get a bird that way. That'll be a neat little experience. I don't know how really? I'm, I don't know how I'm gonna film that on the back of a mule. Maybe put some GoPros <laughs> around their necks or something. <laughs> <laughs> and then it's back for the last two weeks of the season is Wisconsin, 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 and then. Maybe Minnesota. I don't even know if I'll get to hunt much during that last uh, few weeks of the season. I better I better kill me some turkeys while I can because I'll be filming mostly after after uh, South Dakota. Do you think it's strange that in Wisconsin you can pretty much hunt throughout the whole end of May and pretty much kill as many birds as you want, whereas Minnesota it's like one bird in one week if you do the draw. Yeah, it's part. it's 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 weird how drastic it is from state to state, and they 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 border each other. But here here's another uh, observation I've made: <clears throat> hop in your car in Minnesota and drive through you know halfway in Minnesota and drive through Minnesota and then go across the border, say at Stillwater at the new the new bridge that goes across there, and drive about halfway through Wisconsin. I guarantee you you will see four times as many turkeys once you cross that bridge on the border that you will in Minnesota. Minnesota just, their area, the terrain or their environment in the state that supports turkeys is, is far smaller than Wisconsin. It just seems like Wisconsin has very good turkey habitat throughout the entire state. Now, the northern part of the state, the extreme northern part of Wisconsin, um, is not quite as good, I hear. Um, it's not as much ag, but just, you know, there's a lot of wetlands in Minnesota and, and it's not that turkeys can't live in there, but they can hop from island to island and fly around. There's just, you know, so much more suitable habitat in Wisconsin, you know, a mix of woods and ag and it just grows piles of turkeys. 
do they have the population to sustain, sustain uh, you know, killing as many turkeys as you want? Probably not, but the, the fact is, you know, they set their tags, you know, as well as I do. They set them by, you know, success rates. They realize that, you know, not many turkeys are going to be killed overall compared to how many tags they sell. And so until they start seeing a problem or issue, you know, they'll continue to do that. It generates revenue to, to help, you know, run the department and help manage all the properties. And it makes, you know, folks like me happy. I can go kill five or six in Wisconsin. <laughs> <laughs> and then Garrett goes out and just kills one. <laughs> <laughs> so, Shane, to kind of wrap this up, um, tell the listeners where they can find you, like on social media, give a plug for your YouTube channel and all that. All right. Um, my website's callingallturkeys.com. Um I have a YouTube channel. You can just search Shane Simpson and turkey hunting. You'll find my YouTube channel, or you can just click on some of the links on my website. Some of them are the Mossberg YouTube channel because that's where my show initially airs or or is posted each episode. And then they're kind of distributed amongst other areas like um, my YouTube channel. Eventually, they go on there, Carbon TV. On Facebook, you can you can find me calling all turkeys facebook page just by typing in calling on turkeys you can find me by looking up my name I, I do have a public profile page also because i ran out of room for friends on my private page or my personal page and you know you can you can send me a question or chat with me now in the middle of turkey season right now i may be slow getting back to you um, but you send me a message i usually make a, a honest uh attempt to reply as soon as possible and give you an answer to whatever your question is or if you just want to say hey Shane you know I'm a turkey nut just like you just wanted to say hey you can do that but, and Instagram is my other account that I, that I do it's calling all turkeys also so if you just google calling all turkeys you'll find me yeah well, we really appreciate you taking the time to to have a chat with us today you can you can, you can thank my daughter and my dog and my girlfriend <laughs> for, for letting me do this. Because <laughs> at any rate, I appreciate you guys uh, having given me the opportunity to to talk some turkey with you guys. That's a wrap for today's episode. As always, be sure to follow the Sportsman's Nation podcast network on social media and your favorite podcast streaming app. Dan has just again recently shared the numbers for the podcast network as a whole to this point, and it's doing really well for this stage in the game. So again, we really want to thank all you guys for listening in to not only our podcast, but all the other podcasts in the network. We also want to take this time to thank Arrow Hunter for helping us to produce this podcast. We both feel like they've gotten about as close as you can get to a perfect hunting saddle with the Kestrel. It's fantastic being able to drop the weight of a tree stand on those longer walks and hide behind the tree, really blending in with the surrounding tree canopy. You can find them at arrowhunter.us. Thanks for listening.